I think I just got cut off quite abruptly because my mum called me. Um, uh, but it was really nice to hear from her. So ALS, 7th edition, chapter 4, part 2. So check this out. Unstable angina, right? Um, the ECG may be normal. So unstable angina, the ECG may be normal. Or it may show evidence of acute myocardial ischemia, like ST segment depression. Or it may show non-specific abnormalities, so like T-wave inversion. In unstable angina, by definition, biomarkers of myocardial necrosis are not present. The use of highly sensitive troponin assays has resulted in a diagnosis of NSTEMI in many patients who would have previously been considered as having unstable angina. Although the ECGs may be normal or show non-specific features, um, ECG abnormalities are a marker of increased risk. However, a normal ECG and undetectable troponin levels do not necessarily mean that that individual patient with unstable angina is low risk. So basically, unstable angina, it's the difference between angina and unstable angina is the clinical picture. Uh, one is unprovoked chest pain and the other one is provoked chest pain. Provoked chest pain, low risk, we're not worried, it's non-emergency. Unprovoked chest pain, but with normal ECG, and normal troponin can still be unstable angina. So you would still treat them as an emergency. It's one of the ACS syndromes, right? So, um, okay, if the ECG is normal, they're less likely to have, you know, they're less risky. Um, but if they have ECG changes, then it's more risky. It's like a um, continuum. But uh, imagine that your ECGs and your troponins can be normal in unstable angina. So that's the reason. So then what you should do with a patient with unstable angina is risk stratify them using a risk stratification score. So a risk calculator. So the one that, they, that I know about is the uh, GRACE score, which actually stands for Global Registry of Acute Coronary Events. And then it goes on to say that the ECG and troponin concentrations are normal. Uh, if they are normal, um, the estimated risk is low. Patients can be considered for further risk assessment with non-invasive tests like exercise testing or non-invasive imaging. For example, uh, an example I would use is like CT angiography. Um, and other possible causes for their chest pain can be considered. In some patients who present with angina-like symptoms, coronary disease may be later excluded as a cause of those symptoms. Okay, so that's um, that's the difference between angina and unstable angina. There's a really good flow diagram as well on page 24. Um, so you've got an ACS history, your 12 lead ECG, it shows ST segment elevation, it's STEMI, says it in the does what it says on the TIM, ST segment, 
ST segment elevation. Or which I didn't rem- I didn't remember to say earlier, left bundle branch look block, which is presumed new. That's STEMI all day long, both of those things, right? Or, or on the other hand, you do an ECG. It doesn't show ST segment elevation. It doesn't show left bundle branch block, but the EC changes. There are some EC change, ECG changes. Or, in fact, the ECG could be normal. So then you go to the next level. So, okay, so I've either got ECG changes or I haven't, but a very convincing history. What's my troponin doing? So troponin is consistently negative, so you do serial drops. Then consider other causes of chest pain. And the and the arrow points to unstable angina within your differentials, I guess. And then but if the troponin concentration is there is evidence of release, then this is an NSTEMI. So NSTEMI by definition of this flow diagram, given that you could have a normal ACG but elevated troponin. Uh, which is a marker of, you know, cardiac breakdown, isn't it? Um, that's NSTEMI. So you see how it can get quite muddy. Um, an unstable angina can have normal ECG and normal TROPS. Um, but NSTEMI can have a normal ECG, but no, if your TROPS elevated and you've got this convincing history and no other cause for TROP elevation, of which there are, there are many, so just to list them, Things that elevate TROP, sepsis, pulmonary embolism, renal failure, myocarditis, arrhythmias, even things like AF, which is very common if you do a TROP in someone who's going fast. So all those things, um, you know, can cause a troponin rise. But anyway, so that's... um, what did we do there? We sort of tried to pick apart the unstable angina and angina part. Uh, well, no, we focused mainly on unstable angina and how peculiar it all is. Um, the next section is on NSTEMI. Shall we just try and squeeze it in? It's only little. Okay, let's see if what I've said so far holds up. So acute myocardial infarction. So this is an acute myocardial infarction. Um, it's an MI, right? typically presents with chest pain as felt as a heaviness or tightness or indigestion like discomfort in the chest or upper abdomen usually sustained for at least 20 minutes so that's the other thing i guess the timing can stratify these acute cor- or, or split out these acute coronary syndromes as well the chest pain or discomfort often radiates to the throat in one or both arms into the back into the upper abdomen some patients experience discomfort predominantly in one or more of these areas rather than the chest so don't be thrown off if it's not classic basically the chest pain usually accompanied by sweating belching nausea and vomiting and may may also occur as with angina some people with acute mi experience less typical symptoms such as a breathlessness and a small proportion of people experience no symptoms at all i've been taught to I've been taught that those are the diabetic patients can present with no symptoms at all, um, but they haven't specified. When a patient presents with chest pain suggested of acute MI and has raised biomarkers like troponin, but has no ST segment elevation on the ECG, this is referred to as NSTEMI. 12, EC, 12 lead ECG may be normal, but they've got the troponin dudes. 
Um, it may show ST segment depression or it may show non-specific ECG abnormalities such as T-wave inversion. ECG changes are associated with increased risk. Uh, so you've got your troponin, right? You've got your chest pain or your typical features of myocardial infarction. And then you're looking at the ECG because that's really going to stratify, isn't it, uh, in terms of risk. So lots of changes, let's say, or ST, depression, extremely risky, uh, more risky. ECG changes are associated with increased risk. The confirmation of the release of cardiac-specific troponin indicates that myocardial damage has occurred in contrast to unstable angina which is not associated with troponin least so the the i think we discussed it with angina and unstable angina no troponin means no you know no biomarker release there's no troponin in those um one is predictable chest pain and one is unprovoked chest pain that's the difference so the amount of uh, troponin release reflects the amount of myocardial damage. So what's the highest TROP I've ever seen? It's 2,000 um, in a patient uh, in recess. Um, and their BMP was 35,000. Um, and I haven't seen anything higher than that. I've seen a few 800s. Anyway, some patients with NSTEMI will be at high risk of progression to complete coronary occlusion. So... Another way to think of the acute coronary syndromes is to look down, you know, look down a vessel, look down a tube, um, complete occlusion is STEMI, a lot of occlusion is NSTEMI and minimal occlusion is your unstable angina. The risk of this is higher in the first few hours. What is, what's higher? Oh, right. Some patients with NSTEMI will be at high risk of progression to complete a coronary occlusion, further myocardial infarction, and sudden arrhythmic death. So you go from partial occlusion to complete occlusion, infarction, a sudden ar arrhythmic death. Uh, so what didn't we say at the beginning? Um, yeah, the causes. Uh, so atherosclerosis in the coronary vessels that build up over many, many years. Um, that's that's not the cause. Well, I th that's not really the cause. It's when one of those plaques rupture. Um, that's what causes the issues. Or if an embolus from somewhere else occludes the coronary vessels. Okay, the risk of the risk of this is highest in the first few hours, days and months after the index event and diminishes progressively with time. So if a patient um, represents hospital following the initial event, like two weeks later, take that seriously because that, um, that's the risky period. NSTEMI and stable angina are classified together as the non-ST segment elevation ACSs because the treatment of the two is essentially the same. And this is in contrast to the treatment of STEMI. So do you remember how I set out at the beginning and I said there's STEMI and then there's the non-STEMI acute coronary syndromes uh, no, the non-ST elevation ACSs, and they're split out into NSTEMI and acute coronary syndrome. Well, NSTEMI's lumped in with... Sorry, I'm saying it all wrong. Do you remember how I said there was STEMI, 
So there are three things in the ACS, STEMI, NSTEMI and unstable angina, but we lump NSTEMI and unstable angina under the banner of non-ST segment elevation ACS because those two are treated the same. So with STEMI, it's PCI, as you know, um, and with the other two, it's it's the other treatment, you know, uh, your aspirin, your GTN spray, etc., 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 which we'll go through in a bit of detail later. Okay, so maybe I'll stop it there, and we'll pick up from STEMI and take it all the way to. Um, STEMI treatment and then we'll stop there um, and we'll see how it goes okay that's enough for tonight okay very quickly then um, chapter 4 part 3 uh, I'm watching the first half of the France Germany game and own goal puts the French ahead and um and I've just seen someone has parachuted into the stadium and they've cut to an ad break. Oh, it's so annoying. So we said we'd go on to ST segment elevation myocardial infarction. Uh, and again, as I said, it does what it says in the tin. So you've got a um, history of a sustained chest pain, so usually longer than 20 minutes, I think they say, um, accompanied by the ST segment elevation or a le new left bundle branch block. Don't forget that, fellas. Uh, new left bundle branch block. Um, and that's the basis for diagnosis of STEMI. Um, and it indicates ongoing myocardial damage. So obviously you've got a complete occlusion and time is myocardium, as the cardiologists like to say. Um, typically caused by acute complete thrombotic occlusion of the culprit coronary artery. So yeah, that's like a really cool thing about um, ECGs is depending on when it, where your ST elevation is, or indeed the other ECJ changes, but depending on, let's stick with STEMI, depending on where your ST elevation is, um, will point to the artery. So people taking them to the PCI kind of know anatomically where they're headed, uh, more or less, most of the time. Um, obviously, some people are, you know, uh, dominant in different arteries. Um, left untreated, there will be further myocardial damage in the territory of the occluded artery. This may be evidenced by the development of Q waves. So uh, a later finding is Q waves on an ECG and by impairment of the left ventricle function. So uh, if you took them to for an echo, you would see that the ejection fraction falls. <coughs> During the acute phase of STEMI, there is substantial risk of ventricular tachycardia, ventricular fibrillation, and then sudden death. Confirmation of elevated troponin is not required. So that's more a practical point, I think. Um, if you've got someone with sustained chest pain, uh, ST elevation, you're not hanging around, you're just getting on the phone to your cardiologist if um, it's happening on a ward and, uh, and you've got a PCI on site or you're calling your nearest um, PCI centre and getting them transferred, blue lighted across. Uh, confirmation of elevated troponin, yeah, is not required to make the diagnosis to ensure that the patient receives appropriate treatment without delay. Uh, and then I, there are some beautiful ECGs. What I did before I started this chapter is I covered up the um, 
the kind of bylines at the bottom and just see saw just try to see if I could recognize what was going on and what territory they might be in I encourage you to do the same um, that's three minutes on STEMI um, I'm going back to watch the second half of the football and to see what this crazy person that parachuted into the stadium I don't know if it's the Stade de France or or where but uh, <clears throat> hopefully it's just a bit of a joker rather than anything more sinister alright uh, tune in for chapter 4 Part four. Okay, so it's um, still chapter four, um, part four of ALS seventh edition. And um, will this chapter ever end? Uh, it's taken me quite a while to get through it because of a busy week and very late finishes. So we're now going to go to page 30 um to talk about the 12 lead ecg now before that the section we're missing is the diagnosis of acute coronary syndromes on page 29 um and it takes you through the history and examination um and to be a good doctor healthcare professional um it, it's a good little section to read but um given the mannequins on the ALS course won't give you a history and won't give you the signs of acute heart failure. Um, I don't think you're really going to be tested on that. So um, important to know, but to save some time, let's move on. Um, if you're interested, Scotland um, played England yesterday, or England played Scotland at Wembley, and it was a nil-nil affair. It was as dull as ditch water. Um, and for a once in a generation match it left me somewhat disappointed um what's what's much more exciting and i can't believe i'm forfeiting it to read the manual is the game going on behind me against portugal and germany portugal went up 1-0 germany then went ahead 3-1 then 4-1 and now portugal have just scored another goal so it's a six goal thriller I'm skipping so far, it's not even finished, to do this. Okay, let's go then. The 12 lead ECG. Um, record a 12 lead ECG as soon as possible within 10 minutes during the initial assessment and repeat recording subsequently to assess progression of the ACS. Um, so you want to do serial ECGs, that's what we call it. Um, that's to increase your likelihood of picking up changes. Um, and I think also... Um, it, cardiologists like to know if the changes are dynamic or not. I think I read somewhere earlier that dynamic changes make for much more high-risk patients. Um, the ambulance will have done an ambulance strip, and the truth is, if they see STEMI on the ambulance strip, um, they're taking it straight to... You're not going to see it in the ED. Um, so really, we're talking about STEMIs that happen in hospital, because most of them, you don't see them anymore in the ED. They tend to go straight to the cath lab from out of hospital um so it says here the presence of ecg abnormalities on the initial recording may support a clinical suspicion of acs and indicate the appropriate treatment however a single 12 lead ecg does not exclude acs um yeah and so as we said like a normal we've said before in the previous sections that normal ecgs do not mean no acs um, so, 
The ECG is the initial component of risk assessment and planning and treatment. So you see ST segment elevation or a new bundle branch, left bundle branch, um, and you've got this typical history, then this is STEMI and you're not hanging around. Um, it's the diagnosis, you've made it, and you have to transfer them to open up that coronary artery as soon as possible. So opening a coronary artery up, so you've got a blocked coronary artery, or well, blocked in the case of STEMI, um, and you need to unblock it. And that's called reperfusion therapy, and it's achieved one of two ways. The first way and the preferred way is primary percutaneous coronary intervention, and you'll hear that called PCI. Um, and you try and get that done in less than two hours, 120 minutes. Um, working at tertiary centres, they actually say less than 60 minutes, um, or I've seen less than 90 minutes, but here we have less than 120 minutes. I don't know if it's changed then. Um, and um, fibrinolytic therapy should be considered as the alternative. Um, so you're not waiting for your troponin, you're going straight to reperfusion. That's kind of like the take home. All right, so I love this section on ECGs because it gives a good reminder of your territory for ECGs. Um, it doesn't really matter if you're diagnosing STEMI, if you see ST elevation, um, then you know you know that something needs to be unblocked. So I don't think like this is necessarily going to be drilled down on the day and the ALS, but I th it's important to know, isn't it? So um, the ECG provides some information about the site and extent of the acute MI. Um, and the, this is important since the site and the extent of myocardial ischemia and damage influences the prognosis and in some cases the appropriate choice of treatment. That's interesting. Um, but yeah, I can see that like a, um, well, we'll go into the details now, but, the, but an inferior MI is, you know, less burdensome than an anterior MI or an anterior lateral MI, like an inferior MI just tends to, um, I don't know how to put it, but not carry as much risk of sudden cardiac death, I suppose I could get away with saying. And it's probably important to say that these opinions are for free um, and should not be a lot rely, relied upon. Okay, um, stick to what's in the manual. Okay, let's talk about the anterior or the anterior septal infarct. So you see this in the precordial lead. So V1, V2, V3, V4. And we're worried about this because um, this is the territory of the left anterior descending coronary artery. Um, extension to involve V5 and V6, um, one and AVL indicates an anterior lateral infarct. So you've got one to four, but then you've also got five, six, uh, one and AVL. That's an anterior lateral infarct. An anterior infarct on average is more likely to cause substantial impairment of the left ventricle function and has a worse prognosis than an inferior or lateral infarct. So we were just saying that, weren't we? So inferior infarct, well, we've kind of already said it, leads to 3 and AVF. 
and this is caused by a lesion in the right coronary artery um, or sometimes in some people depends on the anatomy less common but some people have an, an inferior infarct um, coming from the left circumflex artery or I should just say circumflex artery so a lateral infarct um, can be seen in V5 and 6 and or 1 and AVL that's your lateral infarct and again, this is usually caused by a lesion in the circumflex artery, or sometimes the diagonal branch of the LAD. So you know that branch that comes off the LAD halfway down? That one. So the posterior infarct, um, this is something I can imagine coming up on, the, um, on a test, because posterior infarct... If you get it wrong, then you're not going to be given the gold standard treatment. You're going to treat for an M-STEMI rather than a STEMI. So let's go through it. The posterior myocardial infarct can be recognized when there is reciprocal ST segment depression in the anterior leads vis-a-vis uh, -vis ST segment. Oh, hang on. So let's go again. Posterior myocardial infarction can be recognized when there is a reciprocal ST depression in the anterior leads. ST segment depression in these leads may reflect a posterior ST segment elevation. And the development of R dominant waves in V1 and V2 reflects posterior wave development. So I'm going to, I don't know if you can hear above the above the din of my broken washing machine but um, what's that, what that's actually saying is the ST depression in the anterior leads is not true ST depression in fact it's ST elevation but it's coming from the back of the heart and we're just seeing the projection like almost like a you know upside down mirror effect um, and you're seeing these big R waves in V1 and V2. Actually, they're not R waves, they're Q waves, but we're just seeing them from the wrong angle again. That's essentially what that means. Okay. So where's the occlusion? So we know, uh, we know we're talking about a posterior MI, but where's the occlusion? So it's most commonly due to a right coronary artery occlusion, but may be caused by a dominant circumflex artery lesion in individuals whose artery provides the main blood supply to the posterior part of the ventricle, the left ventricle and septum. Um, so if you're suspicious of a posterior infarction, you can confirm this by continuing with your chest leads. So rather than stopping at V6, um, you, can you can place a V7, V8, V9 and V10 in a horizontal uh, line around the chest, sort of a continuum from V6. And if you want to know, if you can remember, your V6 in is in your mid-axillary line. Ooh, your V7 is your posterior axillary line. And your V9 is placed to the left of the spine. And then V8 between V7 and V9. But anyway, that's all very complicated. You won't be asked to do that. Um, so that really concludes 
the section on the 12 lead ECG. I'm sorry, I was a bit distracted by my broken washing machine that appears to have just fixed itself, which is absolutely brilliant. Um, so we're going to do one minute flat on laboratory tests. So as you know, we use troponin. That can be troponin T or troponin I. They're, they're the components that make up the um, myocardial cells. In other words, the myocardial cell is called a sarcomere. They're components of the sarcomere. Um, and they, when, the, when there's damage, obviously, things fall apart and you get troponin spilling out into the bloodstream. So although we might have a bit of troponin floating around our bloodstream, the assays are set so um, we don't pick up these levels, which are basically undetectably low. Um, and cardiac-specific troponin measured by current assays do not detect troponin from the other muscle types. So troponin I is more specific than troponin T. I'm reliably informed. It doesn't say that in the manual, but um, I'm reliably informed. So in the context of tip a typical clinical presentation of ACS, troponin le le leak um, in the... Uh, shoot, I've lost it again. Troponin release provides evidence of MI of, of myocardial damage and that not MI myocardial damage and therefore indicates um, that a myocardial infarction has just occurred. I.e., this is not unstable angina, but you've got like a myocardial infarct. Um, unstable angina is troponin negative. And troponin values typically are an important marker of risk. The greater the troponin, the greater the risk of death or further events. So a combination of ST segment depression on the ECG and raised troponins identifies a high risk group. Um, and that's high risk for subsequent acute myocardial infarction and cardiac death. Um, okay, that's it. Um, the next section will be a lot more smooth. Okay, so um, here we are, part five of chapter four. Um, it goes on to discuss... Oh, let me just tell you, it's um, the ALS manual, edition seven, and uh, this is part five. Okay, so it goes on to discuss, uh, discuss other tests. So we discussed troponin at the end of the last bit, and now it just has a quick paragraph on the old echo. So um, echo is brilliant, um, and it's probably the most, well, it's the most important non-invasive imaging modality in this acute setting because it's rapidly and widely available. Um, and you get, you know, to directly assess left ventricle systolic function, uh, which is related to the prognosis uh, in a person with acute chest pain. Regional wall motion abnormalities increase the likelihood of an ACS, but they're not diagnostic. So um, often the patient gets admitted and they get an echo within one or two days, um, and you're looking for regional wall motion abnormalities, i.e. the wall's not moving anymore, it's akinetic because it's dead, um, but the surrounding wall might be moving. 
Uh, so you can see the area that has been infarcted. Um, ECHO will also like diagnose other conditions such as cardiomyopathies, uh, any kind of valve disease you might have had, pericardial disease, look to see if you've got an effusion, um, aortic dissection and um, pulmonary embolism. And I think the way it does that is um, if there's like right heart strain, evidence of right heart strain, um, then that could indicate... Uh, so, for example, yeah, it will say right heart strain. It might say dilated atria from the back pressure coming from the lungs, uh, di severely dilated left atrium, something like that, uh, and that will tell you a bit more about PE. Again, just throwing things out there. That's not in the manual, uh, but what is in the manual is echo will tell you about regional wall motion abnormalities that will tell you about your ejection fraction. Um, echo... Cardiography can also exclude right ventricle dilatation and impairment when <coughs> extensive right ventricle infarction is suspected. Um, and, and in addition, it can be used to diagnose complications of acute MI, such as ventricular sepsal def defect and severe mitral regurg. Um, both of which... Um, will require may require surgical intervention urgently. Uh, so after an MI, you can um, rupture your septum, <coughs> your ventricles. Um, and it can cause valvular abnormalities, and you'll pick those up on echo if they're present. Okay, then there's a bit about the GRACE score, which essentially is a risk stratification uh, score. So um, you'll often, you might be asked about that, but um, that's how you, you quantify risk. So it's a quantitative assessment of risk. It's useful in clinical decision-making. Um, it's not uncommon for risk to be either over or underestimated. And the GRACE risk score provides the most accurate stratification of risk, both on admission and over six months. So that's kind of important to know. So the next section, um, and it goes into a lot more, which you can read. But you can also get um, the, med ed, the med, is it the MedCalc app? Um, let me look for you now, one second. Yeah, the, the, cal the, the app you're looking for is MDCalc, all one, all one word, so MDCalc. And that's got all your risk scores for all areas of medicine in it. It's well worth getting. Okay, then it goes into treatment, and I think everybody knows what the treatment of QMI is. Um, other than uh, taking them to PCI, I mean. Oh God. So uh, I would suggest just learning that. Um, there are mnemonics available to try and remember what you give to treat ACS. The one that springs to mind is Monarch. Um, wouldn't it be embarrassing if I can't remember all aspects, but I'm pretty sure I can. So uh, Monarch isn't in the order of which you give things, but it stands for M-morphine. 
O oxygen N nitrites A aspirin R repatriation C clopidogram maybe and H heparin um, so that's essentially everything you give in a um, ACS for those not going for PCI um, and I mean like as in you yeah, you know what I mean um, and uh, with with the M for Monarch you can also add in metoclopramide so you don't give um, morphine without an anti-sickness doesn't have to be metoclopramide but that's what's always quoted um, because uh, you don't want them to start vomiting um, morphine makes a lot of people feel nauseated or vomit and so you want to avoid that because these people have got enough going on as it is so we're going that's the general measures what I've discussed was the general measures for all acute coronary syndromes um, so um, but with STEMI there's one there's like obviously the percutaneous coronary intervention so um, this is kind of I think this is really important to know um, and I'll whiz through it so for patients presenting with STEMI, uh, within 12 hours of onset, mechanical or pharmacological reperfusion must be achieved without delay. So I think I quoted earlier on that 12-hour window. So 12-hour window, reperfusion, you're aiming for reperfusion before 12 hours. The risk-benefit ratio for reperfusion favour this treatment for those who are at highest risk of immediate major cardi myocardial damage and death. In STEMI, coronary reperfusion may be achieved one of two ways, PCI or fibrinolytic therapy. So let's talk about PCI. PCI, primary percutaneous coronary intervention, is the preferred method of reperfusion. The aim is to restore blood flow or blood supply at its earliest possible time to the myocardium that has not yet been damaged irreversibly. Clinical trials have confirmed the effectiveness of early reperfusion therapy in reducing infarct size, complication, and mortality from QMI. Reperfusion therapy is the most effective, is most effective when undertaken very soon after the onset of MI. And the benefit diminishes progressively with delay. Beyond 12 hours from the onset of chest pain, there may be little to no benefit of reperfusion therapy in many patients. But emergency PCI should be considered in a situation if there is clinical ECG evidence, clinical or ECG evidence of ongoing ischemia. PCI is preferred treatment of STEMI, provided it can be performed by an experienced team in a timely manner. <coughs> coronary angiography is used to identify the occluded coronary artery following which a guide wire is passed through the occluding thrombus passage of the guide wire may restore blood flow in itself, but the use of a balloon or aspiration devices may, requ may be required to restore flow within the vessel. In some settings, glycoprotein 2B and 3A inhibitors may be injected IV or directly into the coronary artery as 
adjunctive antithrombotic therapy. A stent is then inserted into the previously occluded segment of the artery to reduce the risk of reocclusion. PCI is the most reliable method of reopening and maintaining the patency of the culprit artery in the majority of patients. There is a lower risk of the majority, sorry, there is a lower risk of major bleeding, particularly intercerebral, with PCI than with fibrinolytic therapy. For PCI to provide reliable, timely reperfusion, excuse me, A fully equipped catheter laboratory staffed with experienced team must be available 24 hours a day. A fail-safe pathway of communication and care must be in place to ensure that all patients who, in whom STEMI is a diagnosis can access the service, ideally by direct transfer to this facility. Service should aim to achieve a call to balloon time of less than 120 minutes. Delayed treatment are associated with higher mortality. Where PCI is not available immediately, the need to achieve reperfusion as early as possible remains a high priority for those patients initially, uh, sorry, initial, for, and for those patients, initial treatment with fibrinolytic therapy may offer the best chance of achieving early reperfusion. So when it's not available, you're going to fibrinolytic therapy. Effective PCI requires the use of appropriate antithrombotic therapy. In addition to aspirin, all patients should also receive one of the platelet ADP receptor blockers prior to PCI. Using one of the following loading doses. So this, I could read you out the doses of all of these, but um, yet again, I'm seeing some discrepancy uh, between hospitals. I've seen some discrepancy between hospitals and choice of drugs. So just look at your local guidelines, find out what they give prior to PCI. And to be honest, um, I've treated lots of ACSs in ED, um, but I haven't ever treated a STEMI. Like I've never had a STEMI um, that I've then um, redirected to PCI. Uh, so it's quite reassuring now to know that it, um, you you know you basically give aspirin and cloppy or aspirin and ticagrelor. So uh, I think mostly ticagrelor is championed at the hospitals that I've been at. Um, uh, prior to um, PCI, that's what it says, isn't it? Effective PCI requires the use of appropriate antithrombotic therapy. In addition to aspirin, all patients should also be given one of the platelets, yeah. It doesn't say when though, actually, to be fair. Uh, anticoagulation with unfractionated or low molecular weight heparin is given in the catheter laboratory and in high risk cases, a glycoprotein uh, 2B or 3A inhibitor may also be given Bivalirudin, a direct thrombin inhibitor, may be chosen as an alternative to heparin. Okay. All right.
so uh, fibrinolytic therapy. Um, so fibrinolytic therapy substantially reduces mortality of all acute MIs when given during the first few hours after onset of chest pain, but it's less, less effective than PCI. The advantage of fibrinolytic therapy is that it does not require a cardiac catheterize, so a cardiac catheter laboratory or skilled angioplasty team. Early reperfusion may be achieved pre-hospital with the fibrinolytic therapy with resulting clinical benefits, particularly when transport times to hospital are very long. Early treatment may also be achieved by minimising door-to-needle time, time from arrival to hospital to the minister of the therapy. Okay, fibrinolytic therapy carries a risk of bleeding, including cerebral haemorrhage, and not all patients can be given treatment. Um, <clears throat> and there's a list of the uh, contraindications and relative contraindications on this page to be familiar with. Very few of us actually will be administering this anyway. It sounds like the job of a cardiologist or uh, an AL, um, a LAS team. Or an ALS team, actually. So, uh, yeah, maybe we will. Um, so, do you want me to read you out the typical indications for immediate treatment? No. You can read that yourself. That's um, just basically the elevation, the diagnostic criteria for the elevation. So here's, here's the contraindications. So absolute contraindications to getting fibrinolytic therapy are a previous hemorrhagic stroke. So it doesn't matter when, but at any time, if you've ever bled into your brain, you're not getting it. Ischemic stroke during the previous six months. So you can have it if you've had an ischemic stroke a year ago, for example. Central nervous system damage or neoplasm. Recent major surgery, head injury or other major trauma, and that's a three-week cutoff. Active internal bleeding, excluding periods, or GI bleeding within the past month. Known or suspected aortic dissection. Known bleeding disorder. And the relative contraindications are refractory hypertension. And that means a systolic blood pressure of more than 80 because you're trying to avoid an intercerebral bleed. Uh, TAI in the past six months. So that's the same as ice, you know, stroke. Uh, but because oh, it was transient, they're saying it's a relative contraindication on absolute. Uh, anticoagulation treatment. Pregnancy uh, or being less than one week postpartum. Traumatic CPR. Non-compressible vascular puncture. Non-compressible vascular puncture. Oh, so if you've um, if you've got puncture in a vessel and it's not superficial enough for you to tamponade it, I guess. Um, so like I don't know, uh, a puncture to your brachial cephalic, I suppose, or a puncture to your uh, aorta or something. Uh, active peptic ulcer disease, advanced liver disease, because of the varices, they might bleed. Infective endocarditis and previous allergy. Okay, so where were we?
Um, <clears throat> when fibrinolytic therapy may reopen, whilst fibrinolytic therapy might or may reopen an included artery, additional antithrombotic therapy must be given to minimise the risk of further thrombotic occlusion. So, give all patients receiving fibrinolytic agents for STEMI. Aspirin, ploppy, the doses differ from PCI, and antithrombin therapy, which um, constitutes, so antithrombin therapy constitutes low molecular weight heparin, uh, unfractionated heparin, or fondaparnox. Okay, so that's that. Um, now there's a little section uh, that goes into rescue, angiopla rescue angioplasty. So it says here, in 20 to 30% of all patients receiving a fibrinolytic drug for STEMI, reperfusion is not achieved. Observe the patient closely with cardiac monitoring during and after admission administration of the fibrinolytic record a 12 lc cg at 60 and 90 minutes after you the fibrinolytic therapy failure of st segment elevation to resolve by more than 50 percent compared to pre-admission ecg suggests that fibrinolytic therapy has failed to reopen the culprit artery so basically, you haven't gone to PCI's first port call, you've gone to fibrinolytic therapy, it hasn't worked. In some people, the transient but off in some people, the transient but often brief occurrence of a accelerated iodoventricular rhythm occurs after reperfusion arrhythmia um uh, often occurs as a inverted commas reperfusion arrhythmia. Okay, um, in cases of failed reperfusion, transfer to the patient without delay to PCI. All right, so, so basically, um, I probably should have read ahead and just said, if, if at first you don't succeed, PCI, PCI, PCI. All right. Treatment of unstable angina and NSTEMI now. So, in contrast to STEMI, there is no evidence to benefit, um, no evidence of benefit from immediate reperfusion therapy in most patients with non-ST elevation ACS. So, those are those other two: unstable angina and NSTEMI. Um, regardless of whether the ultimate diagnosis is either of those. Uh, so, put another way, that even if you had all the catheterization laboratories in the world open um, and they were desperate for people, even if you sent your, sent your NSTEMIs and your unstable anginas there and they opened up their coronary arteries almost like a preventative measure or to clear the partial clot, there's no evidence to suggest benefit. Interesting. So, for most patients with non-ST elevation ACS, risk stratification to assess the likelihood of further event is required to guide further treatment. Patients with NSTEMI, 
So need positive troponin for that. And patients with unstable angina, negative troponin for that. Um, but other high risk features have an increased risk of further coronary events and death. Patients who have been resuscitated from cardiac arrest due to non-ST elevation acute coronary syndrome are especially high risk group. All these high risk patients require immediate careful assessment and medical treatment. Immediate treatment objectives for all patients with these syndromes are to prevent new thrombus formation, which may occlude an artery and lead to or extend uh, myocardial damage. Secondly, to reduce myocardial oxygen demand, providing myocardial cells with a better chance of survival in the presence of a limited supply of oxygen and glucose. So the first one, when it says to reduce new thrombus, that's talking about your aspirin and your, your cloppy or ticagrelor. Um, I guess the second point is referring to oxygen therapy. To prevent further thrombus formation, give subcutaneous low molecular weight heparin in therapeutic doses. Or fundaparnix. And give aspirin 75 milligrams daily after the initial 300. In addition to aspirin, patients who have elevated blood troponin, like an NCME, or are planned for angioplasty should receive, should be given antiplatelets, uh, sorry, a platelet ADP receptor blocker. Um, Cloppy, prasugral, or ticagrelor. Uh, and then I'm going to stop there because actually, as I say, uh, it's, it's just treatment of ACS. Um, <clears throat> and then it goes on to talk about the subsequent management of acute coronary syndrome. So, you know, all the secondary prevention stuff, cardiac rehabilitation. Um, preservation of your left ventricle, your beta blockade, your reduction of cholesterol, stopping smoking, antihypertensive treatment, etc., etc. So um, you can read those uh, yourself. Again, that's not going to be in. It. Well, you might get in a question about it. So I would say that uh, you kind of need to have a vague idea. Uh, but I'm not going to just read because I bored myself in the last two to be honest. Um, and then the chapter finishes of other complications of MI and it's a very, it's um, only a couple of pages to the end of the chapter, but I think we're going to finish chapter four there. Thank goodness. <laughs>